If you had to describe your lifestyle as either simple or complex, which would you choose? I have a feeling most of us would say pretty complex, because we are busy, active, stressed, overcommitted, stretched thin, and tired people. In our jam-packed daily schedules, work, study, and family time usually take up most of our time. But then we tend to fill in all the cracks in between with every activity you can imagine. Eating, preparing food, eating out, movies, hanging with friends, kids' playdates, dropping kids off or picking them up from school or daycare, homework and school projects, swimming lessons, dance lessons, learning an instrument, concerts, community events, birthday parties, funerals, weddings, bridal showers, baby showers, baby gender reveals, family gatherings, family reunions, housework, yard work, grocery shopping, gift shopping, clothes shopping, all kinds of other kinds of shopping, including house shopping, moving, exercise, playing sports, kids' sports, watching sports, camping, hiking, riding, busing, driving, car repairs, doctor appointments, veterinarian appointments, walking the dog, feeding the pets, writing messages, posting stuff online, catching up on the news, binge-watching the latest must-see show, etc., etc., etc. Now, how many of you all of a sudden feel exhausted? (laughs) With the exponential growth of technology in social media, which is on 24-7, the demands on our time or energy or our affections only seem to be increasing. So life is not slowing down. It's only getting faster and more frantic and more constant. And then the church comes in. And we get messages that We should be at church all the time for worship services or Sunday school or prayer meetings or serving in in multiple ministries for uh, weekly small groups. And, And don't forget about men's ministry or women's ministry or seniors ministry or young adults or youth group or VBS. Oh, and we need you for the outreach events here and potlucks and banquets and committee meetings and board meetings and business meetings. And then you personally should be involved on a, on a daily basis in evangelism and compassion and hospitality. And all that we want to do is yell at everything, stop! <laughs> it's too much. And you've all felt that tension before, right? Among so many competing demands in our lives, it seems the church can be just as guilty at monopolizing your time and contributing to the chaos of your life. Our world is indeed a chaotic place, and some of that is is just the nature of our current cultural context. But as as a church, we don't want to contribute to the chaos of life, We want to call you out of the chaos of life. We want to help you to develop priorities to redeem your time because the days are evil. 
and to get you to the point of being able to say, to, to be still and know that he is God. To call you to the Savior whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Because we don't believe that, that God's ideal for us is chaotic or confusing complexity. Instead, what may rather be a, a surprising simplicity. Over the next three Sundays, we want to refocus ourselves as a church. We are going to simplify things as a church, to make things crystal clear, to help all of us get a grasp on what is most important in our life and in our church life. We want you to know very clearly what God expects or desires from you, and then what we as your church would want from you or expect from you, which I hope are one and the same thing. So, before we dive into God's Word together, let's go ahead and pray that He would speak to us today, and then we'll open it up together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we come asking for you to speak from your Word. We pray for your grace to be given to us now, that your Spirit would come and work on each one of our hearts. I pray that the words that I say would not be mine, but that they would be yours Sustain my voice and convict hearts today, God. Move us, change us, encourage us, and strengthen us for the task at hand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Matthew 28 at this time, although that won't be our main passage for today. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, in the, in the days after Jesus died and rose again, right before he returned to heaven, he left his followers with some crucial instructions, a mission for them to carry out. And in the weeks that followed Jesus' ascension to heaven, his disciples would officially launch the church. And so, what was the reason for the church? What was the reason the church was formed? What was the church to do. That ties directly into Jesus' commission of them here in Matthew 28 that goes this way. Look in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now you might notice a few different tasks there, like going, baptizing, and teaching. But those are all methods and symbols of the foundational task that Jesus gave his disciples here, which was to go and make disciples. Making disciples. So, Jesus is building his church on earth. And he wants his followers to be involved. Otherwise, he would have never given them this mission. And how are we to be involved? By making disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations. But that raises the question. What is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? 
And that's a very important question for us to ask because it plays into everything we do. If we are serious about following Jesus' command to make disciples, we need to have a very clear understanding of what a disciple is and what a disciple looks like. Well, the word disciple comes from the Greek word for learner. And it essentially means a a follower or a pupil or an apprentice of a teacher or a movement. So a disciple would seek to learn from a teacher and then to follow their teachings in their life. About a a year ago now, uh, the Board of Elders here at Calvary wanted to clarify our mission statement as a church. And so we all sat down on a day's retreat and we discussed things and brainstormed things and prayed a lot. And part of what we did that day was we took a whiteboard out and we made a list of what a disciple is. So we we thought, we prayed, and according to God's word, what does a disciple do? What is a disciple? And the list we came up with was pretty impressive. Probably around 20 or 30 different items, all based in scripture, all of which describe different aspects of being a disciple of Christ. It's a very thorough list. Not a very simple one. But then we found it fairly easy to to group those things together under broader headings. And we found that every aspect of being a disciple that we could think of fit under three categories. And these three things really radically simplified how we viewed what it meant to be a disciple. They not only described what a disciple was, but they also described the ways that we would expect people to become disciples here at Calvary. So here they are. A disciple of Jesus is someone who, first of all, worships God. Worships God. Secondly, grows together with other believers. And third, serves other people around them. If you ever find yourself wondering, what does God want from me as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus? What am I called to do as a believer? Or how should I seek to grow as a disciple of Jesus? We think this is a pretty good summary answer. You're called to worship God, grow together, and serve others. These are firmly based on what God's Word says about what we do and how we mature. You are called to worship, you are called to grow, and you are called to serve. We as the leaders of this church believe that this describes our purpose as a church so well that we're actually making this our new mission statement, right? It really encompasses everything that we do or we should do. That we, We think that this can help you know what we expect from you as part of our church. And it can help you identify what you need to be doing in order to grow more, what will help you more along the way. Today, we start with worship, because that really describes our purpose of existence on earth altogether, underlies everything. We believe that we were created to worship God, to glorify God in everything that we think, say, or do. Interestingly, in Matthew 28, which we just read, discipleship, began in the immediate context of worship. Right before Jesus gave that great commission we read, it said this, in verse 16, look. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they did what? 
They worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and so on. So as they worshipped, Jesus told them to go forth and multiply, to reproduce themselves. Matthew also mentioned that some doubted here. So not everyone was ready yet. But he obviously wanted them all to get to the point of worshiping him. He actually accepted the worship from them. And he rightfully wanted all nations to follow in their footsteps as disciples. Let's look deeper at what it means for us to be worshipers of God, though, and why, why this is so crucial. If you would, please turn to Mark 12 with me. Mark chapter 12. If you're in Matthew 28, that's really close, just a few pages over. Page number in the Pew Bibles is on the screen if you're using one of them. Mark chapter 12. I want you to see these words for yourselves, even though they may be quite familiar to you, because they are indescribably significant on a daily basis for every single one of us here. Mark 12. Jesus was in the midst of a a number of tense discussions with the religious leaders, with group after group approaching him to try to trap him in what he said. But in verse 28, a single gentleman steps forward who is different from the rest. He asked an innocent question, it seems, uh, perhaps to test Jesus, but not to trap him. And he said this in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? So it says he was a scribe, so he knew scriptures well, and he likely already had an answer to this question in his head. So he was seeing if Jesus would answer the question correctly, and thus if he could be trusted. But this man really didn't beat around the bush, did he? He dove right into the deep end. Like, okay, this guy seems, he sounds sharp. Let's see how he answers the biggest question of all. Right? Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, Jesus must have sensed that this man was more sincere in his motives because he didn't turn the tables on him like he did with the groups previously. Drawing from Deuteronomy 6, Jesus gave a straightforward, simple answer. Jesus answered, verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you get what he's saying? Of all the things God has spoken to man, of all the laws that he put in place, of all the commands he gave, of all the words in this book, Jesus says these these were, I quote, the most important of all. This is what God wants from people more than anything else. 
our love. Now, I will contend in a moment that to love God with everything is actually to worship Him. But first, let me give you the main point that I believe Jesus' words tell us here. And that is the most important thing God wants from us is for us to worship Him. The most important thing God wants from us is for us to love and to worship Him. Now, I could never preach on this great commandment too often or too many times because we constantly need reminded that this is the most important thing in here. Right? Most important thing ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I just returned from a, a family holiday in California. And as I packed for that trip before we left, we had a list, no joke, this long that we had to get ready and to pack and prepare for the trip. Many very important things to bring with us, right? Clothes, phones, money, so on. But there were a couple things that were more important than anything else. One was passports, right? There would be no crossing borders without a passport. But also, just as important, this wasn't even on the list, but would be the other members of my family that were supposed to go on the trip with me. Right? If I forgot to bring my wife or kids, uh, the trip would be ruined. <laughs> but Jesus says here, if we make a list of important things that we are to do as, as people or as Christians, and loving him is not at the very top of the list, then we've missed the whole point. This is not some optional thing for us to do if we feel like it. And this is absolutely essential. Notice the scribe asked, which commandment is the most important of all? This was a commandment, a command, and, and one that transcends the Jewish law at that. This was reiterated by Jesus as a command for all people of all time. And he says, you shall do this. Not, I suggest you do this. Or, you might want to do this. You shall. After this, Jesus gives the scribe the second most, command, second most important command of all. And then he stresses the importance of these commands. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice, there is no other commandment greater than these. Uh, we're going to get much more into verse 31 in that second greatest commandment in the next two weeks. But why are these commands so crucial, according to Jesus? What makes them so important? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus also gave these commands, and he said this there. He said, on these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets, which was shorthand for all of Scripture, all of God's words. So God, so Jesus says that every law that God gave to man, from Genesis one to Revelation twenty-two, all depend on these two. 
There were 613 laws in the four of the first five books alone. And Jesus boiled them all down to this. Love God and love others. Every psalm, every story, every prophecy, they can all be summed up by these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. How's that for simplification? It makes sense that loving God would be most important if you actually read and study Scripture. You can see this running as an undercurrent everywhere. That what matters most to God is His glory. Right? Which would be egotistical and selfish if He didn't actually deserve every last ounce of it. This is why the, the proper worship of God was so crucial in the Old Testament laws and the prophecies. It's why, the, why idolatry was seen as such an insidious and blasphemous sin. Because it goes directly against this. It's why the first two of the Ten Commandments basically say, Worship God and only God. It's why Jesus essentially equated following him with loving him. Listen to what he says in John 14. It says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words... If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will love him. And implicitly, as we are called to make disciples, we are called to make lovers of God. Now you may still wonder why I equate love with worship. So let me explain this. When I say worship, what comes to your minds? Maybe singing? A genre of music, prayer, services, we call them worship services. Maybe you think of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Based on that verse, it's become popular to describe all of our life as Worship. We're to represent ourselves as our spiritual act of worship. So worship is supposed to be our lifestyle. I think that's, that's definitely accurate, for sure. But here's what I give as a, a working definition of worship. All right? I've used it a number of times before. I think it's, it's pretty good. To worship is to glorify something by loving it with everything. Okay? So to worship is to glorify something outside yourself by loving it with everything. All right, so in worship, we're obviously seeking to glorify something, to exalt or to praise or to, to make something else look good. All right, and we can do this in countless ways. We do it every day. But love is at the root of all of them. We might seek to, to talk something up that we love. Right, we might give things to it or give things for it. We might spend huge amounts of time on it. Make big sacrifices in our life for it. 
We might expend energy and resources on it. We might accumulate something as possessions. We might think about it all the time. Or talk about it all the time. Or sing about it. So you can fill in the blanks, right? What do you love with everything? Right? What do you love all the time? What, whatever you, uh, whom or what do you love with your time, with your money, with your thoughts, with your words? It, it may be something very good, like family, or work, or food, or music, or nature. It may be yourself that you love most. It may be some other person that you seek to glorify. But if what you tend to love most is anything but God, it is idolatry. On the other hand, if that what you love most is God, then you have the essence of pure worship. This is why I believe that that Jesus' most important command is at its root, it's a command to worship God. To love him with everything. This is backed up by the way that the command here is prefaced. Both in Deuteronomy 6 and in Jesus' words in the Gospels, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he said, and you shall love the Lord your God. We might think, well, I don't get the connection there. I, I mean, that isn't even a command. Hero is, what is, why does this statement immediately precede the greatest command of all time? Right? Jesus could have started with, you shall love the Lord your God. Why does he seem to include this in the command? But understanding verse 29 is crucial for understanding verse 30 and its gravity. I think that Jesus hints at a couple major reasons why the command to love him is so important. And here in verse 29, we can see a first reason why. Okay, The the most important thing God wants from people is for us to worship him. Why? Because of who he is by nature. Because of who he is by nature. The most important thing is to worship God because of who he is. If I told you to to cast a vote for a particular person in the next election, the natural first question you'd have is, why? Why should they get my vote? If I told you to get behind a certain contestant on American Idol or Dancing with the Stars, text in your vote, wonder, well, have they earned my support? Have they done well to deserve it? If I argued that some sports star deserved an MVP award, you might disagree with me or you might defend someone else and, you know, they deserve that recognition more. All of those things have to do with someone's worthiness. Their worthiness. They should only receive support or love or honor or praise or recognition from us if they deserve it. Right? And when we talk about God's worthiness to be worshipped, we have to start with who he is. Who he is. That's where he started. It's like he anticipated our question. Why should we love him? 
Hear, O Israel. Hear this, O people of God. And I'd echo, hear this, O church of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, Yahweh our God. Yahweh, the I am, the self-existent, holy, eternal, sovereign, ruler over all. Yahweh our God. So the Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Supreme Being, the Deity. Our God, our Maker, our Savior, our Guide, our Provider, our King. Heroes of the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is one. One, He's the only one, the only Lord, the only God, the only one like Him. He's it. There are no other gods remotely deserving of our love and devotion. So do you realize what that implies then? It means you're not God. It means I'm not God. It means that life, your life, my life, isn't supposed to revolve around us. Because the universe revolves around one being, not two, not seven billion, one. We were created in God's love, by God's pleasure, and for God's glory. This means that no other person in your life should be more important to you than God is. This means that all those other things that we tend to obsess over don't deserve it like God deserves it. The education, the work, the hobbies, the stuff, the activities, all of these are not God or even a God because God is one. I think that life can, is often so complex because of our God complex. And we delusionally think that either we are God or that we can be like God, and so we, that we can control things or we can make life go our way. It clearly should go our way. If we could only work harder or do more or spend more or give more, life would be right. We can make it right and we can go, 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 never failing, never giving up, never running out. That's a God complex. Only God can do those things. And when we let other things compete with our allegiance to Him, life easily spins out of control. The biggest reason we should be focused on worshiping God is because He is worthy of it. Who He is by nature. But I believe we can see another reason here in a significant wording shift. Between verse 29 and verse 30. Notice the words Jesus uses, especially the pronouns he uses. Verse 29, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Did you hear it? Verse 29, Jesus says, The Lord our God. For Israel as a whole community... But in verse 30, he makes it intensely personal. 
says, you shall love the Lord your God. Your God. So what does this tell us? Here's what I think it tells us. The, the most important thing God wants from people is for us to worship him because of who he is to us. Because of who he is to us. We must worship God because of who he is to us. He's not just a transcendent, distant creator who wound us up and then let us go. He's also a personal God who is personally invested in us and in our lives. He didn't just give up on us after we sinned terribly. He pursued us in our brokenness. He continually offered grace and mercy and pardon to, to restore our relationship to him. And then he provided a permanent solution to sin by becoming human just like us, entering our earth, stepping into our world himself, becoming like us, and then willingly taking what we deserve in death and then giving us what we can never earn in God's favor and acceptance and new life. See how personal that is? He is, or he can become, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, and our Lord, your God. And like we read earlier, as he stood on a mountain with his disciples, he gave them marching orders, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's now in charge. He should be our Lord, our master, our boss, our king. Because all authority over you, over me, has been given to him. And then, how did he finish that passage? So then he, he said, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he is not just God over us. He's not just God for us. He is still God with us. Ponder this. Why does the New Testament tell us that we should love God? It says we love because he first loved us. Right? So he has gone to the deepest depths in order to love you, even to death on a cross. So let me ask you, do you love him? Is he your God? Not just our God, is he your God? Have you totally surrendered your life to him since he surrendered his life for you? You can today. I hope you would. Leave your sin. Believe in Him. And He promises that He will save you. When we give Him all, He becomes all to us. And then loving Him really is supposed to become impulsive. So I hope through that you can see why we should worship God. I hope you've been convinced why we should worship God like we do. But you may be confused about how we're supposed to do this. On the great commandment, Jesus clearly lays out his expectations. 
And what we see is this, that the most important thing God wants from his people is for us to worship him with everything we are. With everything we are. We should worship God with every part of our being, with everything we are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So we should love, worship God with all of our heart. That's the the core part of our being. And so to love God with your morality with your emotions, your attitudes, with your passions. You should love and worship God with all of our soul, so that the spiritual, invisible side to you. So love God through having a spiritual relationship with Him, with things like prayer. We should love God with all of our mind, our thoughts, intellect, imagination. So love God through studying Him, learning about Him, dwelling on Him, meditating on Him. And we should love and worship God with all of our strength. It's our physical bodies. And love God with how you use your health, your energy, and of course your, your eyes and ears and mouth and hands and feet. To sum up, this, this verse basically means... Love God with everything you are all the time. You might wonder, well, how does that simplify things? I mean, that's a pretty sky-high demand. It's rather all-consuming, right? This may tend to make things more complicated, not more simple. Let me say this. Yes, this may indeed make things much bigger for you, with much higher stakes, but it also gives us one overarching purpose in life, one most important top priority. Right, we are torn in life in so many different directions every day. Live for this, spend time on this, invest in this, work on this, indulge in this. We, we may feel in the midst of this that we have many purposes in life. Many things that are pulling us, many things that we must do. And Jesus speaks through the chaos and says there's actually only one thing. You must love me. Every day, no matter what you're doing, love me through that. Make worshiping me the one governing passion that rules all other passions. And doing that, excuse me, not only writes our priorities in life, it also makes whatever we're doing in life hugely significant. The most mundane tasks, whatever we're doing, can do in order to love God. Jesus never claims to make things easy. Okay? He doesn't give low demands or low standards. But he does make things simple. Love God with everything. Not easy, but simple. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does that mean for us? 
on a personal level, you may already be thinking of some things, mulling them over in your mind. There may be a sin that is in your life that you know has been robbing you of your love for God. Ditch it. Kill it. Lose it. You do whatever you have to to kill that sin. There may be an activity or two in our busyness that needs to go right, in order to be able to prioritize God more in our lives. There may be a need for you to go to bed earlier right, so that you can spend time developing a love relationship with the Lord. There may be a need to, to just focus what you're already doing more on glorifying God. Maybe it's just a mindset switch for you. The possibilities are really endless. What comes to mind for you when I read, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The Spirit may be prompting something to you. So you may know better than I what needs to happen. But the final thing I want to talk about today is how this impacts us on more than just a personal level, how this impacts us on a church-wide level. If the most important thing that we are called to do is make disciples, and the most important aspect of a disciple is that they love God with everything, then everything that we should be working toward, everything that we do should be working towards that goal of worship. Does that make sense? Right? The most important thing, make disciples. The biggest part of being a disciple is loving God. So the most important thing we do is get people to love God. We want every member of our church, every attender, every ministry of our church to be passionate about this purpose. So if you're in a ministry, or maybe you're even leading a ministry, ask yourself, how are we glorifying God through what we're doing here? This is your primary directive, to worship God. And as to how this plays into simplifying things for you, all the you know, average churchgoers, right? Well, worshiping God really should encompass everything that we do. But what we want you to see is one clear main way that you worship God here at Calvary. And one defined commitment that we're asking of you. And that is to be here on Sundays for our worship gatherings as the body of Christ. We want you to see this time that we gather as a crucial opportunity to worship God with God's people. We as Calvary Baptists, we want to see that we worship God through our Sunday gatherings. And we do this in a whole host of ways, of course, through through prayer and our prayer gatherings before the service, which has been shifted to Sunday in order to simplify things, as well as the prayer in service through the singing of songs and worship to God, through the reading and the hearing and the obeying of God's word, through giving, through the Lord's Supper, and a lot more. Now, I'm not being legalistic in any way by saying you need to be here. Okay, it's not a law, but you need to be here. Faithfully and frequently. 
And if not here, in another Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. It has become an epidemic for Christians across North America to attend church less and less and less often. Huge trends. People are busier. People are wealthier. And that creates more opportunities for us to do other things. More responsibilities that we have. People travel a lot more than they used to. More things are happening on Sundays. And so lots of contributing factors play into this. But even supposedly committed believers are gathering to worship God less and less and less. We don't prioritize the worship of God ourselves, and then we do the same thing to our children. We prioritize other things in their lives, from homework to sports to music, over their relationship with God. So we don't make church a priority in our lives, in their lives, or Sunday school or youth group uh, an important part. So is there really any wonder why our kids are dropping like flies spiritually? Without a deep and growing love for God, which happens both personally and corporately, without a deep and growing love for God, there is no strong foundation for our hearts, souls, minds, and strength to stand upon. Unless you misunderstand, Just attending church is not the solution. Being engaged as a worshiper of the one true God is. It's putting Him first in everything. You can come to church every week and you can be disengaged or be a total hypocrite. You know what? Your kids are going to see right through that. But much more importantly, God will see through that. So are you truly worshiping God with all of your heart, every chance you get, and everything you do, with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? There is nothing greater or more important than this. At the end of this, you may feel a bit overwhelmed, even thinking that this sounds impossible. And if so, you're right. It is impossible to love God like this on our own. We will fail every time. And that's where Jesus comes back in. And the only person who ever loved God perfectly and then offers to help us love God the way that he loved us. If only we make him our king. In Mark 12, after Jesus answered the scribe here, Mark records an interesting response from the man. He basically agreed to everything Jesus just said. Look in verse 32. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus just passed his test. So the man gives him a passing grade. You're right, Jesus. Jesus didn't laugh. This man was sincere. It says that he answered wisely. But just knowing wisdom or truth isn't quite enough. You need to submit to it. Jesus said that this man was so close to the kingdom. He was on its doorstep. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What did he need to actually do to enter the kingdom? He needed to recognize Jesus as the king. Did he ever do this? We aren't told. The more pressing question is, have you? He wants things simple for us. And that means first, that he comes first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there are hearts that are wrestling with this today, debating with themselves, arguing with themselves, maybe even fighting against your spirit, I pray that you would draw them to their knees at the foot of the cross, show them your grace and your mercy, and draw them into your embrace today. For all of us, God, we do not love you as we ought. So help us. May your Spirit empower us to live each day more and more loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may you be the one that is glorified from this. Not us, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.